This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hello, welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. I'm Tom Marvin, one of the technical editors at Bike Radar, and with me is Seb Stott. He's one of our tech writers. How are you doing, Seb? Yeah, good, thanks, Tom. You all right? Yeah, very well, thank you. I see you're uh, holed up nicely in the Forest of Dean. How's it looking out there today? It's looking grim. Uh, <laughs> which is why I'm inside talking to you. Uh, but I'm happy to be. How about with you? Uh, I'm uh, I'm sat in my bedroom with um, lots of bedding as sound deadening uh, to try and improve the sound quality of my recording because uh, I'm recording on a telephone today because uh, of a missing memory card. Um, so hopefully, if you are listening to this, it isn't too terrible. Um, outside, I imagine it's grey, but I've got the blinds down uh, so I don't have to look at how horrible it is outside. Well, you're such a professional, Tom, even drawing the blinds for better sound quality. I try, you know. <laughs> you've got to got to put the effort in now and again. <laughs> um, so today we're uh, doing one of our little mountain bike uh, podcast features. Uh, and today we, we sort of we thought we'd have a look at um, some other bike technology that seems to get a lot of attention uh, and then you get a few products coming out and then we realised that actually they didn't really work. Um, so yeah, we're looking at uh, bike tech that maybe should have worked but um, actually didn't. Um, now, I know one thing that's quite close to your heart, Seb, is the world of suspension. You love a good suspension fork, and you've tested pretty much every single one on the market, from what I can tell. Um, but there are two types of suspension fork that have never quite taken off in the way that perhaps uh, they might have done. Um, so let's start with um, USD forks, or does that stand for upside down forks, I guess? Yeah, that's exactly it, yeah. Yeah. Um... What, so, what, what is an upside-down fork, and why, why should 
it work so well and what you know so most mountain bike forks nowadays use um i guess what you might call a right way up design um where the rwu forks <laughs> yeah yeah uh, <laughs> um where the the stanchion tube is at the top and the lowers are and the lower legs are wider um, and that means that the they can have an arch. So um, in addition to the crown, which is just under the head tube on the axle, you have an arch because the lowers connect um, all the way from one side of the axle to the other. So you have that extra uh, brace. Upside down folks don't have that because they have the, the stanchion tube, the, the narrower tubes at the bottom. And then the wider part goes from the top of the stanchion tube all the way up to the crown or if it's a dual crown fork all the way up to well the the upper crown um so with the dual crown fork like there's a lot of um the reason why people keep thinking they'll they'll work for mountain bikes um and and they're used they're almost ubiquitous for motorbikes um so down forks yeah yeah okay well maybe not ubiquitous but they're very common um and I think the main reason is that um, the main seal is is um, upside down at the bottom of the uh, the leg of the fork, which means that all the lubricating oil flows to the bottom, flows to the seal and to that that um, that lower bushing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the upper bushing won't be quite as well lubricated, but will be you know still in that bath of oil. Sure. And then also all the dirt and water and dust um kind of has gravity helping to keep it out rather than trying to push it in so it's very easy to keep the oil where it needs to be and the dirt a little bit easier to keep the dirt out possibly uh, so the 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 dirt gets pushed down to the bottom of the stanchions on compression away from where the seals would then return to yeah exactly i i think i think that's not the main advantage the main advantage is that the oil is is uh, sinks towards the seal and the lower bushing where where it needs to be. Um, also, you have because the wider part of the fork is at the top. Uh, that's where you have the most leverage on the forks, so the most bending moment. The um, so if you imagine you're hard on the brakes or you're smacking into a, a big square edge bump, there's a there's a bending force on the fork, and so uh, the place with, which has the highest leverage is the top of the fork by by the crown or by the head tube. And on an upside down fork, that part is thicker, um, which which makes sense from a kind of fore-aft stiffness perspective. And uh, quite often people, proponents of upside down forks will say, oh, it's stiffer. And what they mean is it's stiffer fore-aft. Okay. And I, I think that's, as far as I know, that's they're the main advantages. Better lubrication because the oil sinks to where it needs to go and uh, better fore-aft stiffness because the thick bit is at the top. Okay, so in terms of sort of notable forks that have been upside down, I guess you've got the, the Mizoki Shivers. Now, they did a single crown and a dual crown. Yeah. There was the Maverick fork, also similar sort of time, early 2000s, the Maverick DUC, and I think they did a single crown one as well. Yeah. And then in more recent times, uh, there's, uh, well, the RockShox RS1, yeah, cross-country fork. A cross-country light trail fork, yeah. And then there's another one recently. Did X-Fusion have one recently? I think X-Fusion had a prototype one. I'm not sure if it made it to production. Um, 
they had they yeah they had a prototype I think that had an angle offset so that the stanchions were at a different angle to the head angle. Okay. Uh, which made it pretty terrible on like slap down landings because the fork was was like uh, like forty five degrees effectively. Uh, but I think that was just a prototype, as far as I know. Uh, there's also, of course, the Ma- um, the Manitou Dorado, which has been around for forever, still going. Some people still think that's one of the best forks around. I've never actually used one. No. Um, our boss Rob Weaver talks about using them at World Cup racing back in the day, and how they used to have all sorts of problems with like twisting up and needing to be like have all the bolts loosened put everything set set right to where it's meant to go and then tightened up again. Mm. Uh, DVO had a downhill fork, uh, maybe still do. There's a few like niche manufacturers as well. Like I follow a, um, oh, a South African guy. Intend, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they make a few. Is the Emerald, DVO Emerald. Uh, I have ridden one briefly in Finland. It felt all right to me. They, they had an interesting design where they had a fender that was also a structural part of the fork. Oh. So they had, it was an upside-down fork, which is obviously just two legs going straight from the head tube to the axle. But then they had a fender that went from the axle over the top of the tire and back down to the axle. And it was made out of carbon and it was somewhat structural. Huh. Uh, that prevent the, the lower legs from twisting a little bit? I think that was the idea. I think I rode it with the fender on. I only rode it briefly. Um, I didn't think it was ridiculously twisty, uh, like you could go around corners. It didn't try and go straight on. Um, I didn't, yeah, I, I didn't have much time on it, but, um, that was, that was almost an admission of the problem. Um, and then rock shocks with the RS1. Sorry, we, we haven't actually said what the problem is. We've talked about the good, the good point. Yeah. So what, so, what is the problem with upside down forks? <laughs> good segue, Tom. Thank you. Basically you have an arch, you can have an arch with a conventional fork, but not with an upside down. So you have uh, one less um, point of contact connecting the two legs. Yeah. Uh, so you only have the axle and the crown. Mm. Uh, you might have two crowns, but basically you only have the axle and the crown. Um, and the axle doesn't connect the two legs. Um, particularly that, stiff, like in a particularly that, strong way, right? Um, yeah, so you have... The two, you've got to remember that the two legs with, without an arch uh, and without an axle can move independently. Mm-hmm. So if you're, if you're going into a corner um, and there's a lateral load on the tire, so the, the, the tire is trying to flex sideways, then if one leg can move independently of the other, then if, if one leg just moves like five mil further into its travel than the other, then the wheel will twist. Uh, it will move sideways. Mm. Um, and that kind of creates a, a sort of vague cornering feel. Uh, so that's lateral flex. And tell us, uh, upside down forks are particularly bad for this because they don't have that secondary arch connecting the two. Um, and in fact, in a conventional fork, you can, have, you can have the spring in one leg and the damper in the other. Mm. And even though all of the, you know, if you're static, but you're you're loaded up into the travel, all of the force is coming from one leg, and yet the fork doesn't sort of twist. It um, it stays very rigid because it's got the axle and the crown connecting uh, the two sides together. Uh, so they can't move independently. Um, so that's lateral flex, which is always, well, not always, but 
generally much worse on an upside down fork. And then you have torsional force. So that's like if something is holding the wheel still and you're turning the bars, you can get a, a bend through the two legs um, that basically twisting along the axis of the fork, along the steering axis. Mm. So you turn the bars and the axle stays stationary. Um, I'm not sure which of those is the major problem, but both of those are generally uh, worse on telescopic uh, on upside down forks. They are they are flexier because they don't have that arch. Um, so DVO tried to get around that with that that fender come arch. Um, um, you often see like very very big axles, don't you? In in, in you know, twenty mil axles or. As Rockshox did with the RS1 was the, those torque caps, which are now basically on all their forks and are quite annoying. And that's basically a larger <laughs> diameter uh, end of the axle, uh, well, axle plate or or hub plate on the on it's the side. It's the hub axle, yeah, yeah. Usually, when we say axle, we mean through axle, whereas the axle is actually part of the hub. Yeah. And so Rockshox made the ends of the axles much wider. Um, to give Which, a bigger surface area between the fork and the axle to improve that stiffness between them between the two. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's available on all their forks. It's interesting that not many people take it up, um, take up the option to use them. Um, like product managers, people who are deciding the spec of bikes don't don't all go, oh yeah, let's have those and they'll, they'll make it perform much better. I've not done a back to back test of of. Um, uh, torque caps versus none, but I think on a conventional fork it doesn't really make much difference. But they were invented originally. Uh, well, Rockshox first used them on the the RS1 to to give it some more lateral uh, torsional stiffness. And and yet when we reviewed it, um, you reviewed it, Guy Keston reviewed it, and I didn't really I... do a huge amount of benefit. It was definitely um, yeah. It, yeah, it, there's, there's probably a reason why you don't see the RS1 around very much. Uh, well, well, one of the reasons is that it was heavier than the SID, despite being more expensive and having uh, lots of carbide. The upper was was fully carbon fiber, is that right? So, yeah. Um, and yet it was heavier, and uh, from what I gathered, it was still quite flexy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it wasn't, wasn't as... Um... They sort of pitched it originally as an XC fork and then tried to pitch it as a lightweight trail fork. I think when they realized that the extra weight it was carrying made it unattractive to XC racers. But then the, the sort of the flex and the twist and its performance didn't quite work for, for trail riders. But um, that's probably why it's not around so much. Should we um, stop giving the RS1 a bit of a kicking and move on to uh, another type of fork that has also been given a, a slight little shoeing in in reviewings uh, more recently and that would be a linkage a, a linkage driven fork so what's the theory between those so most of the forks we use are telescopic forks so they rely on sliding they rely on a structural part of the fork the legs being able to slide against one another and on a mountain bike because part of the chassis is so light like the human is 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 obviously most of the weight and they're not very kind of uh, strongly to thin quite so that the rigid sprung mass of a bike is very low, basically the frame, um, which means that when you hit a bump, it's very easy for the bike to just move up and down and the suspension not to work very effectively. So in this particular, friction is really critical. And telescope forks are because they have quite a large surface area between the stankings and the less, whether it's inverted or not. Um, and there's a lot of 
uh, forces, lateral forces going through those legs. So if you're braking, if you're hitting bumps, if you're cornering, there's a lot of, of, of um, sideways load on those uh, sliding elements, and that causes them to have a lot of friction. Um, one detail I do with most forks is if you push down on the grips, every, everyone pulls the front brake and pushes down on the fork and goes, oh yeah, that feels great. But if you don't use the brake and just push down on the grips, you'll find that you can get the bushings to uh, what's called park. So you push them a fairly far interval. Then you sort of go lighter and heavier um, alternately grips, and you'll notice that it takes a lot of force to budge for that position. That's because when you're pushing down without the brake on, you push out, the fork is not vertical. So there's a lateral load on the fork that does it bind. And the, the force you need to buy for keeping a brand new brush one is really, really high. Um, and that's a big problem. So, so basically, linkage forks, <laughs> which um, just like a linkage on the back end, imagine like a rear suspension linkage shrunk down and stuck onto a fork. So you can, you can use clearance links to get, um, uh, to, to allow the axle to move through its travel. Uh, and how much better, because you have a shock uh, which isn't structurally loaded and which has a lead ratio on it of maybe two or three to one. So it's three newtons of friction in a shock and you have a three to one ratio. That's only one unit of friction. It's friction dramatically. And, and I think that's the main benefit. They can also be used to, uh, depending on how the linkage is arranged, to use the braking torque to hold the bike up under braking. So the fork doesn't dive as much. That's called anti-dive. Um, so you get this brake dive. Um, they have a lot of theoretical advantages. Uh, but in reality, um, well, I've only tested two. And one of them was brilliant. Um, one of them was really promising, but I didn't have time to give it a very thorough test. And that's the Structure Cycleworks SCW1. Um, they basically made a whole bike around a linkage fork. So it's like it's like a bike with a linkage back end and a linkage front end. Like the PRS21 from White in the early 2000s. It's like that in that specific sense, but it's quite uh, in terms of how it actually works. Because uh, the thing to remember about linkage forks is that there's just way more possibilities. Like the axle path is no longer straight. It no longer has to be the same as the head angle. It can do all sorts of things. And the, the main point about linkage forks is not a lot more together, because there's, there's way more options to get it right and there's way more options to get it wrong. Uh, and the, the axle path and the kinematics of the white and the structure are very different. And I think Structure is the company of the people who I know of. They're the one who I think have, have pretty much, I, I wouldn't say got optimized, but they're the, the people who most promising. Yeah, I think their design makes the most sense to me. Um, so the other one I've tested is the Trust Shout, which is a modular fork, so you can bolt it onto any bike. Um, and it uses a what's called a trailing link. So you have like a rigid fork, which is like swept out in front, uh, makes your head angle look really slack because the fork legs are like sticking out in front. And then the linkage is like a four bar suspension linkage, like you'd get on a horse link bike, but kind of bolted onto the back of that rigid fork, if that makes sense. And so the problem I had with that is it's pretty fundamental, which is that the because of that design, the links are really short. And that means the axle path curves a lot. So it goes from like almost horizontal. The, the axle path is almost horizontal at the start. And it's like C-shape. And then it's slightly it's forward at the end. And that's a very odd feel because depending on the direction of the force and where you're on level, it can go from being very firm. Particularly at the start of the travel, because you have that almost rearward force uh, axle path. 
Um, and then it's and then it's like kind of falls into trouble then. So um, great on square edge tips if you want to like buy straight the it would. But like if you're going down steps or flat landings or uh, little holes, it's really weird, really unpredictable. And it had the same problem as the upside down forks in that the two legs can move independently. Um, and it's got a normal 15 mil axle and, and it had quite a lot of lateral flex. Uh, you don't always notice that. It's, it's mostly if, you're, if your bike is sort of at an odd angle relative to the rider and then you get some kind of lateral force and then feels a bit vague. But the main problem is that axle path was just really tightly curved and that, that made it quite unpredictable and quite harsh in certain situations. But, but both of those forks have the advantage of being almost frictionless compared to more forks. is amazing. Um, but structure worked out a way to have an axle path that's, that's fairly straight. And so it's much more predictable. Um, hopefully I'll be able to ride that bike more in the future because uh, I only got a quick shot on a medium, but the sensitivity of the suspension is amazing. Um, yeah, so, so, I still, so that's one that I still think has a lot of promise. And maybe someone will crack upside down forks as well and make it stiffer without being too heavy or. Yeah, well, we'll, uh, we'll look forward to, to those. I mean, when we're sort of talking about, yeah, sort of performance where there's theoretical sort of real advantages, but the, the, the reality never sort of has taken off uh, or performed as maybe we'd imagine them to. I mean, gearboxes, uh, gearbox drivetrains or internal drivetrains and, and internal gears as another area where, there's always a lot of hype about them, whether it's, you know, Rollhoff's, I mean, obviously back in the day, Sturmy Archer, Rollhoff made like a 14-speed system, and then you've got Pinion as well, and, you know, they're sort of very cool, sort of futuristic, techie things, but um, again, they've never quite lived up to the promises. So what what, what are gearboxes promising as, as mountain bikers? Um, well, I, th- I feel like you've ridden gearboxes more than I have. Mm. I think it's probably the main the main appeal is is reliability right yeah um i mean i i had a roll huff for four years while i was at university i i decided before i went that i wanted a super reliable you know i had a bit of i worked in a worked in a sweet factory i was a, a little willy wonka for a little while uh, saved up my savings and uh <laughs> and uh, bought myself a roll huff um with the view of you know i was going to be a student i was going to be skint um didn't want to be breaking mechs and replacing chains. So the idea of the roll-off was that, yeah, super reliable. Um, basically, they always advertise or always sort of said, you, ne- you never need to touch it. It beds in after thousands of miles and all this sort of stuff. And and, and the reality kind of was that, I, you know, in those four years, I changed the chain once and I sent it off for an oil chain once. Um, and, and, yeah, I mean, the, the gearboxes, you sort of come in, in two forms. You've got a hub-based one, um, like the roll-off, where – um, it's based around the rear hub, and you have a, a single chain ring driving a chain to in in a straight line uh, to the rear hub, so a very straight chain line. Um, the other alternative is um, a more gearboxy thing, like the pinion, for example, or a frame mounted roll off in some slightly weird cases, I think. Um, and that's where the the planetary gear system is mounted within a box within the centre of the frame, um, and then you have a uh, a drive going to a fixed sprocket on the rear wheel. Um, those are a little easier to use with full suspension frames. So we're seeing pinions on, on downhill bikes and on full suspension trail bikes as well. A little bit more so than you'd see uh, a roll huff. And I guess we'll talk about that. And that's down to sort of weight distribution, um, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, so the, the advantage then is a fully sealed 
uh, ultra-reliable um, gear system, um, usually between, I don't know, 10, 12, 14 speeds uh, across quite a wide range. Yeah. I mean, if you've ever smacked your head off a tree stump, you'll, you'll be able to see the appeal straight away. Mm. Um, and then, you know, lubricant chains as well. Like, um, sorry, um, you, you can use them with a the, uh, belt as well. Um, which is a, a, a kind of secondary advantage, uh, which some people take yeah. take advantage of, um, because you don't need to derailleur. You can have a belt, um, in some cases, um, and that kind of even further because you don't even have to leave your chain. Um, but but the yeah, just the the reliability pretty much. Yeah, you, you might get some cable stretches, but you don't have. Yeah, so long as you're. Um... A bit of cable stretch, but nothing nothing too major. And they tend to be sort of like a pull-pull. Um, so you, ha- you tend to have two cables coming out of the shifter. Um, so you're not relying on like a spring return mechanism, um, which increases the reliability of the shifter and also um, of the, the actual shift itself. And also you tend to be able to um, shift while you're not pedaling. Um, also, we did forget, of course, Shimano's Alphine system. They had an 8-speed and an 11-speed, as well as a Di2 version too. But it was never super mountain bike specific, that one. Although Zeroed, with their uh, high-pivot downhill bike, I think they used the Shimano Alphine as a hub... Within the frame. Within the frame. So they had a normal crank going to high-pivot with a chain, yeah. and then they had a gear hub in the frame, then on the other side of the gear hub was another sprocket, which went to the rear wheel. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, that was quite a niche bike. But, um, yeah, I think it had some some uh, cult fans, cult following. We went to Lord's downhill race, and someone had a, was it a pinion gearbox? Yes. At some, oh, was yeah, it? In, a, in a downhill bike. I can't remember what frame it was built into. But anyway, they had... Because the pinion shifter is like a twist grip, and not mm. everyone likes that because it's pull pull. You have to like power it in both directions. Yeah. But he had rigged up a spring on his frame uh, to act to to kind of power, if you like, one of the cables, and so yeah. he could just use a normal under the bar thumb shifter. Yeah, that was pretty smart. Um, that was pretty smart. That was quite an interesting setup. So so you can you can do something like that. You don't need the kind of pull-pull system. No. But you probably talk about the disadvantages now. Mm. I mean, for me, the main, well, there are two main disadvantages to the Rollhoff, and one of those is uh, a disadvantage of, of that system specifically, and one I feel is a bit more gearbox-based. So the issue I found with the Rollhoff number one was the weight distribution. So, okay, it was on a hardtail, so less sort of impactful on suspension, but generally speaking, they're quite heavy, um, and having a heavy weight right at the back of the bike, uh, in my opinion, for any sort of like spirited or maybe uh, slightly more involved mountain bike riding, really kills the feel of the bike. And it, it you know, maybe if you're touring, if you're going to go and cycle around the world, that doesn't matter. But if you actually want to have fun on a bike, I think having a kilo of hub or however much it weighs um, somewhat kills the feel of the bike. Yeah. Although we should say that the, the, the weight distribution isn't always a disadvantage because if you have a frame-mounted gearbox, that's yeah. nice and central, and also it's sprung mass, so you're increasing yeah. the the basically the inertia of the frame to being deflected by bumps, and so the the suspension works better basically. 
Yeah. Um, so that was, that's that's my sort of issue with the roll half is is that it is sort of hub based and unless you built it into the frame that that's the issue with yeah. it. Um, the other issue, you know, which I really disliked was uh, the soupy nature of your drivetrain. Because um, despite what evangelicals Oh, soupy. That's another EV spirited <laughs> yeah, and soupy. So that, that's some journalist thing <laughs> there. Maybe we should uh, play that. that. Maybe that should be part of our podcast. People can listen with a bingo card. That'll be the next one. Who can work in the word <laughs> avocado yeah. into their uh, next uh, podcast? Um, yeah, the, so the planetary gear systems work on reducer or uh, extender gears. I can't remember which way around it is. But basically you have... Um, some direct or more direct drives, and then it goes into like a an extra set of cogs to uh, change the ratios yet again. Um, and it's in this extra set of cogs. So basically half of the gears, seven of the 14 gears on the roll half, felt um, even less efficient than the, than the best seven. And those tended to be the lower gears, which are the ones you'd use when you're riding up a hill. And I spent a fair bit of, you know, I like to go run up big hills, go to the Alps, that sort of thing. Um, and... Uh, riding a pot of treacle up an alp on a mountain bike is pretty it's pretty dispiriting i'll be brutally honest um and i lost the love for it um uh, around that um you, you know you get a lot of people say oh yeah but they're wearing and they're wearing and they get better and they do get better um and i think the 11th gear is a one-to-one ratio and it does feel great in that 11th gear but out with that one gear and especially in the bottom seven gears you're never going to convince me that they feel great um and that for me is why they don't really, they don't really work, and the pinions the same. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people say, "Oh, they're a bit heavy," but I don't think the weight of the issue when climbing, the primary issue when you're climbing is the the drag, no. the efficiency. So I can't remember what the efficiency is, but it, but I think somewhere around 90, mm. maybe I've heard, maybe. Yeah, it's 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 like low. It's only a few percent less than a than a you know like a, a worn drivetrain but it's those few percent you, you can just feel it and you can hear it and psychologically at the very least it makes a massive impact in my experience yeah and and people will say oh but you can have a straight chain line which saves some watts but but you have that drivetrain as well as so whatever whatever percentage you're in, in the chain which admittedly will be lower a lot of the time mm. that's in addition to the um, uh, the gearbox itself, mm. and because you have uh, at least two, but maybe a series of intermeshing cogs. Um, you know, intermeshing cogs have you know spur gears mm. have some drag. They always do, and um, yeah, I, I don't think you can really get around that with with intermeshing gears. Like, even if it's ninety percent. Uh, that's quite a lot, you know, losing 10% of your power all, you know, all the time. It's noticeable. That's, that's quite a big deal. Like, you know, that's reducing your power to weight ratio by 10% is, is like, uh, increasing your weight system, system weight by 10%. So like if your system weight is hundred kilos by can rider, it's like adding 10 kilos mm. in terms of climbing speed, uh, in terms of power to weight. So yeah, it's not ideal. Um, it's not the dream. So I think we did talk about this before, but last time we talked about it, uh, I think that was before Shimano's patent uh, for yeah. a chain-based uh, frame-mounted gearbox. Mm. So that's basically a derailleur in a box. It's like two sets of gears and the chain 
like if you imagine two cassettes, but pointing in opposite directions. So at one end, you have a big one and a small one. And at the other end, you have a small to a big. And the chain basically walks, you know, one cassette and then the other mm. all the way along. Uh, so you have two, I think it's two seven speed cassettes, which between them give um, 13 combinations. Um, so two times seven, but minus one, because one of them is the same as the previous one. Mm. But but yeah, it's 13 gears. Um, and because they are chain based, okay, you have an extra chain inside the gearbox in addition to the chain that takes the drive to the drivetrain. But both chains are always straight. And compared to a gearbox, I think having um, those two co-rotating sprockets with a chain is more efficient than having two counter-rotating um, spur gears. Yeah. Um, so I think the, the, the efficiency could be comparable, if not better than a conventional drivetrain, because although you have two chains, they're always straight. Um, and then you have less maintenance because it's enclosed. The chains are constantly lubricated. They could be, well, the open bath. Yeah. Open bath, um, lubrication for the, for the gear chain. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's been a little while since we've seen that pattern and we haven't seen anything come of it, but it'd be very interesting to see if it comes along. Yeah. I think that's more of a, it's almost a theoretical rather than a, a reality this far, but you know, hopefully Hopefully one day. The other one that was interesting that I rode um, about a year ago was on a, a Reason Muller um, e-commuter bike. And okay, this is, we'll briefly touch on this before we move on to the next topic. But uh, that was a, um, uh, a CVT, a, a, conver- a con- continuously blah, 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 continuously variable transmission. So instead of having gear one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven, it was a range of gear, um, which you would change um, with a little grip shift. Um, so there was, it wasn't stepped, but it was continuously variable. Um, yeah, really interesting. Like analog, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've had a quick go on that round the block mm. on your bike, and I thought it was quite fun. Yeah, I don't know how it'd work for mountain biking, but it, you know, and obviously that's just uh, it would have to be probably built to be up to mountain biking specs, but um, an interesting concept. But it, but I mean that's on an e-bike, so yeah, if it can withstand e-biking, could it withstand? Yeah. Maybe I mean maybe the hardware you know all the mud and the water and the and the shocks, but um, I'm sure it could be modified again. That was a grip shift as well, which you know we we weren't actually going to talk about grip shift, but grip shift is something that often had its uh, plaudits in the world of mountain biking, but never actually um, did very well. Should oh, we? I um... hate grip shift. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think we could all agree on that. But I, I wonder if CVT could be a good thing because it's it's increasingly used in cars mm. because cars have like a given. Uh, power output they have an rpm that is the most efficient mm. and the continuously variable gearbox means that as you're accelerating your car can be at that rpm mm. so if it works out that it it's most efficient at 1800 rpm you can accelerate from like 40 to 70 without the revs changing yeah which i i think i imagine you know it must sound very odd but in from an efficiency standpoint it makes a lot of sense and I think humans like to be at quite a specific cadence as well. Yeah. Like, you know, pedaling at 70 RPM or 100 RPM feels pretty weird. Mm. Um, but I don't know, maybe there isn't as much need for it. If you've got 12 gears, you know, there's not exactly yeah. a big gap between them. But I guess you could sprint and accelerate without ever, you know, having those discrete jumps and maybe that would be better, but... I think you'd, if you're manually adjusting that as you went, that would take more 
brain power than just yeah. pedaling a bit faster. Maybe it'd be automatic. Maybe it would look at your power output and go right. If you're if you're making that much power, you probably want ninety RPM. Uh, like in a sprint, you generally uh, pedal faster, higher cadence. Uh, so maybe it would be automatic and, and you would just pedal and it would just feel like being on a static bike, like putting down a lot of effort, but you're like... Ex- oh, in erg mode. Erg mode's horrible. What's that? <laughs> but yeah, I agree. That's, like, that's basically on, um, on those uh, indoor bikes where depending on what hill you're going up or what you're trying to do in Zwift, it adjusts the, uh, the resistance of the indoor bike automatically. God, uh, maybe it's more because uh, they've closely linked in my experience to ramp tests, which are grossly unpleasant maybe i haven't come away too happy with that let's uh let's let's move on let's move on um let's very quickly have a look at uh, this next one your first five speed bike had one of these seb what was it oh yeah so um i don't even know what it's called but it's like a derailleur protector Mm. just a piece of metal that stuck out (laughs) from the chainstay and was like a guard to the derailleur yeah that's it that's it Great. Yeah, you could, like, I had a lot of tantrums when I was a kid. It's li- it was literally my first bike. Yeah. I had a lot of tantrums, threw the bike on the ground, it never broke. Yeah. Nowadays, I, like, touch my mountain bike. When you have a tantrum. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I can only have a small tantrum, and my eagle <laughs> gears just never work again. Oh, damn it, you need a little wire basket for your mech. Yeah, I do. And, and it's not just that, because Lapierre... At a 2011 Lapier Spicy 516, we, we yeah. all know it. And it yeah, had a little carbon fin. It did. It came out from, I think it was the seat stay, actually, and, and added a little protection. And I think it really worked. Because yeah. Israelis on that bike lasted way longer than on other bikes, I reckon. Yeah. But I did hit it off a few rocks, um, and it ended up getting sort of sharpened <laughs> like the carbon <laughs> the carbon delaminated and it got like a razor edge yeah so if you're like pushing your bike on the right hand side nice you had to be very careful it was it was like one of those bodicea chariot things it was like <laughs> yeah you had to be very careful but the main victim of course was me um so don't do that but you know one made out of metal if uh if you're a, if you're a listener and you you're uh, you've got CAD on your computer and you're looking to uh, make a few extra bucks, maybe this could be like the next AVS handguard. Maybe the yeah. this could be a little business opportunity for you, uh, for the white radar listeners out there. Definitely, obviously, like SRAM and Shimano would shut you down because they want to sell more derailleurs. Absolutely, would, you know, big derailleur. Send the heavies round. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So why, why haven't they taken off? I mean, I guess one argument against them is, well, one, foliage, because uh, they're an extra thing to get caught up in. And also, um, y- you know, if you want to squirrel your way through some nagery rocky tech, uh, you're effectively making your bike a little bit wider. But I mean, I think those are fairly innocuous little problems. I, I think on balance, we should go back yeah. to those days. I mean, it only needs to be like a couple of mil further outboard than the derailleur is mm. when it's you know in the hardest gear mm. it doesn't have to be stick out for miles mm. um yeah i mean maybe i shouldn't maybe we shouldn't be published yeah maybe should, we should, should we, just we put should a cut this. And go and make one yeah <laughs> i'm not sure if you can i'm not sure if you can patent a little bit of metal that sticks out of the frame i i'm pretty sure we could i'm pretty yeah, sure we i'm could. not sure what the ip is on that like 
Well, we've got about two and a half weeks until this podcast goes out, so we've, we've got time, we've got time. In which case, this will look like a fantastic advert. <laughs> yeah, Tom and Seb's mech protector, or Seb and Tom's mech protector, let's say. Uh... I think Seb and Tom's, yeah, <laughs> Seb and Tom's. Prefer, that, prefer that one. Yeah. The S&T mech protector, coming to a bike shop near you in uh, 2021 for vastly overinflated prices. Oh yeah, of course. Obviously, it'll be reviewed we, we very it, well like, in the mag. We should make it about a penny cheaper than the SRAM XX1 Derelli. <laughs> yes, exactly <laughs> that. We'll, we'll corner the market. We'll corner the market. Yeah, that's all it needs to be. <laughs> Maybe this is another thing that we should bring back. Then um, number five, or is it number six on our list uh, of uh, retro tech that disappeared for no real good reason? Um, the fork boot, those funny little concertina bits of rubber that sat over your Manitou Magnum in uh, two thousand and three. Uh, why? What were? The, what was the point of them, and why have they? Uh, why do we not see them anymore? Well, the point of them was to to keep all the mud and grit out out of your out of your fork, which um to be fair, wiper seals do an amazingly good job of nowadays. Mm. Like do you ever think like your forks are constantly being sprayed with mud and sand and water and they keep almost all of it out. It's it's pretty incredible, but mm. the seals are tight. Like they're quite a tight fit and that adds friction. Yeah. Um and as far as I can tell, you well with a fork boot you don't have that problem you don't need a tight seal you you don't need a tight moving seal Mm. um to keep the mud out um i I mean as far as i can tell the main reason they've gone is that they look weird and you can't have the big shiny gold or otherwise you you can't yeah you can't advertise your kashima coating so easily or uh yeah i think that the problem that was often mooted um, I mean, so there was obviously the, the OEM spec rubber ones that um, were built onto the forks in the factory. The other thing that sort of came about, lizard skin did like a neoprene sock for your fork and shock. And I certainly fitted those to my bike as well. I think the issue, I, th- I think the issue with them, what I sort of heard was that once water and dirt got through past the boot, or in the case of the lizard skins thing, when it soaked into the neoprene, um, you were basically holding the moisture and the <laughs> sorry, this is gonna, they weren't very good. Uh, you were holding the moisture and the grit and the dirt onto those seals that had been not maybe down specced, but certainly wasn't built to a particularly good standard. And thus it helped introduce because it was, you couldn't see the dirt was there. So you didn't clean it. So yeah, maybe we need to reintroduce them, but with a, a little warranty sticker on there saying that this may void your warranty or this may uh, this definitely needs checking on a daily basis to make sure you're not holding all that stuff against it. Maybe, but but the the seals at the top and bottom of the boot can be as tight as you want them to be, whereas a wiper seal, a scraper seal, has to be tight enough to keep dirt out, mm. but not so tight that it's really that it adds a lot of friction, and so they end up with a kind of compromise where. Yeah, they had a fair bit of friction, um, and they kind of allow a little bit of dirtiness. And so you have to service your fork every fifty hours. Nobody does, and so you end up with like those big score marked up sanctions. You often see which has been ugly enough. And it's like, well, we have a solution. That we're in. And um, Chris Porter, he has uh, the fork where he took the wheels off, and just got some old down inch tube, and taped it or zip tied it to the lowers, and zipped it to the top of the sanction. And I had a ride on his bike with that sensitivity. Amazing felt great. And then nothing's gone behind wiper seals, and I think that was probably the main thing. 
Um, and I mean, the, you know, the stanchions were, were completely clean. They had no, they had no dirt on them. They had no seals and the stanchions were just covered in lube. Like the lube was, um, cause not only does the, the seal have to keep the dirt out, it has to keep the oil in, um, which means that you have a, a dry unlubricated stanchion constantly going into the, the seal, but the whole stanchion can just be covered in oil. Um, yeah, I, I think it makes a whole lot of sense. I don't know why we've gone away from them. Um, as long as you have a way that the air can escape inside the boot, uh, because obviously if it's sealed at both ends, when you, the fork compresses, you know, the air has to go somewhere. You're, you're adding an air spring effectively by mistake. Exactly, yeah. Um, but I, I don't know okay. why they've gone away. They seem well, like a really good let's, idea. Um, let's, uh, so we've actually got a couple of weeks again, so... We should get to the drawing board very quickly, um, and we'll add it yeah. to the uh, ST mech protector. We'll uh, do the uh, S and T uh, fork boot. Get rid of your regular seals. Reduce friction kit thing. Definitely. Yeah. Great. We are. I mean, we have. We have. Given, like, how long do patents take to process? Well, I reckon we can push them through pretty quick, and uh, if we're still at bite radar in a year's time, you'll know something's gone wrong. Yeah. Fox and Rock Shocks have, have got to us. Big Fork. <laughs> Big Fork, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All the, the World Service Centres. Yeah. SKF uh, Seals are going to be having a word with us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there we go. I think we'll, um, we've, we've warbled on um, a little while there, so I think we'll, we'll wrap it up. Um, but, yeah, if, uh, if you can think of uh, any tech that has uh, existed in the past that no longer exists and you don't really know why, um, drop a comment on bikegrader.com. There will be an article associated with this podcast. Um, so have a look for that. Drop us a comment, and uh, maybe we'll do a follow up um, in six months' time. A, when we're both absolutely minted, uh, and you've bought your uh, fork and your mech protectors offers, uh, and B, uh, if you've come up with any ingenious ideas that we haven't yet created. Wicked. All right. Well, thanks very much, Seb, and uh, we'll speak to you again soon. Thanks, Tom. And uh, bye, yeah. for bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bye.